It's on page 171. Everybody, if you have a cell phone camera, take a picture of the choir loft. This is the last day you'll ever see it. Next, uh, next week it's getting covered over, so thank you, choir, for having your last song in, in this choir loft. Uh, it will now be a kitchen. So, in the new building, that'll be a kitchen. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. That is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and, and at Edrei did defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, and we'll stop there. So many years ago, when I was in seminary, uh, <clears throat> I was going to school, and my wife was working in Boston. She was basically putting me through school uh, and she uh, worked at downtown crossing and w- one time she was out with her co-workers they all went out to lunch and they were coming back they're riding the tea back uh, from lunch and you know sort of your typical scene on the tea everybody you know making no eye contact just kind of standing there waiting to get the ride over with and and a woman in their car sort of spoke up and addressed the whole group she said excuse me everybody you know you can imagine everyone in the tea is like oh no and uh, she, she was apparently some Christian who just felt led to um, share the gospel with the whole group. And so she started talking about Jesus. And, and one of the lines she said uh, was, you know, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And she went on to share the gospel. And then she was done. And then, you know, when the car stopped, everybody got out. And just another strange day on the tee. Um, but it was interesting, too, because one of my wife's co-workers was a guy named Dennis. And Dennis was... He was just trying to process what had just happened. And so he sort of said to everybody, what did she mean having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? What does that mean to have a relationship with God or with Jesus? And I, I was fascinated by that anecdote because you could sort of, at least as a Christian, you could put yourself on either side of that story. You know, I could put myself with the lady who stood up in the car, not that I've ever done anything like that, um, but maybe I should. But anyway, I, I admire her pluck just to stand up and tell people about Jesus. You know, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Uh, and, and I just admire her telling people to have a relationship with Christ. You know, I have a personal relationship with Christ. And I agree, people need to have that. So I can see that side of it. But, you know, I, I could also in that story put myself in the position of Dennis and think, you know, yeah, it is confusing when Christians say things like that because we don't always know what that means. A Christians use shorthand jargon like ask Jesus into your heart, have a personal relationship with Jesus. And, and I think we forget sometimes that people maybe who aren't raised with that, that sort of vocab, it's, it's like what does that really entail, having a personal relationship with Jesus or with God? Well, this morning we come to Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we're still in Deuteronomy chapter 1. In fact, we're still in the verses that we studied last Sunday. Um, but, but I want to continue introducing this book to you uh, just today one more Sunday to kind of set the stage for the whole book if you were here last Sunday we studied verses 1 to 5 
and we saw that Deuteronomy is a sermon preached by Moses to the people of Israel when they were on the verge of the promised land about to cross over and take the promised land. And so it was a sermon to them about how to be the people of God and what it looked like to be faithful to God and to one another. And, and, and it, was a, it was a sermon given to the Israelites on the verge of change. And we talked last Sunday about why that's just a great book for us to study as we're, as a church, kind of poised for change and transition. And we need to think about what it means to be the people of God. Well, I, I want to introduce the book again, but I want to now think of Deuteronomy from another angle, that it's not only a sermon in a period of change, but the book of Deuteronomy is fundamentally about God's people in a relationship with Him. It's a book about what it looks like to have, and here's the key word, a covenant, a covenant relationship with God. Look at the text. This morning I really just want to look at verse 5. Actually, I just want to look at one word in verse 5 as a, as a, a, a lens into this text. It says, East of the Jordan in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law saying. So Deuteronomy is an exposition of the law of God. That Hebrew word there for law is Torah. Going to expound the Torah, God's commandments. You get the idea of commandments back in verse 3 as well. Verse 3 says, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. And so Deuteronomy, as we're going to go through it, we're going to see there's lots of commandments. There's lots of laws in the book. And these laws relate to how God's people are supposed to relate to him in a covenant. Now, now I say laws and commandments, and probably for a lot of people, they go, well, yeah, I know that. Isn't that what religion is really all about? A bunch of rules, a bunch of laws, a bunch of commandments. Uh, many people have this perception of religion. That the point of Christianity is to saddle us up with a bunch of really, uh, you, you know, suffocating rules that, that kind of make our life miserable. Some of us grew up in churches, perhaps, where what, you know, the message we got was don't drink, don't, don't smoke, don't dance, don't eat meat on Friday, don't have fun, don't be happy, you know, you're, you're in church, it's time to be miserable. And being a Christian is really about sort of having your life saddled with lots of rules and lots of obligations. It's like when my family and I go uh, on vacation to Florida. We try to go every year. There's this condo we go to down there. And there's a, you know, like every condo complex in Florida, there's a pool. And we go to this pool. And on the, the wall by the pool is this list of the pool rules. And it's like 15 rules. And we, we always laugh at it every year. You know, we, we make fun of these rules and we read them. Uh, you know, because if you actually followed all the rules that you're supposed to do in the pool, it seems like all you could pretty much do is walk into the pool very quietly and then just stand there. You know, <laughs> it's like no splashing, no floaty toys, you know, no food, no running, no, you know, and so we start making up our own. You know, you may not go near the water. You may not look at the water. You may not think about the water. Uh, and I think that, that's a perception we have about following God. You know, what is it? what would it look like for me? to take a step into following Christ. And instantly we go, well, it would probably mean just a lot of rules and, and lots of things I'd have to do and a lot of fun I can't have anymore. And people tend to have that perception of it. But what I want to suggest this morning is a different way of understanding the law of God. That, that yeah, th there are laws, there are rules, but they're part of being in a covenant relationship with God. That relationships always have boundaries and commitments and obligations to them, real relationships. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
Let's think about perhaps the most famous of the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Even if you're unfamiliar with Deuteronomy, I'm sure you've heard of the Ten Commandments. Uh, God gave that as part of His law to Israel. And here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is hearkening back to that day 40 years earlier when God had given the Ten Commandments to Israel. And if you look at chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. That was the day when they got the Ten Commandments. When he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Then get this, verse 13. He declared to you His covenant. The Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. So the Ten Commandments, the, the law of God, the Torah, are here the same thing as the covenant. So, so the laws of God given here in Deuteronomy, and we could look at more examples of this, where laws and instructions are part of the covenant and the covenant relationship. And so really... Uh, that's what this book is about, are the rules as they relate to the covenant. Now, that raises another question. What's a covenant? There's a word we don't really use a lot today. It's a concept that may be unfamiliar to us. Uh, the basic idea of a covenant, if I can just make it as simple as I can, a covenant is when two unrelated people or groups or parties enter into sort of a relationship, a voluntary relationship with each other where, where they're formerly unrelated and now they become committed to each other and they set up certain parameters around their relationship. And they say, this is how we're going to relate to each other now. We're going to be committed to each other in a new way. And in the Old, uh, in Old Testament times, typically when these covenants were made, they would take an oath. They would take the oath in the name of the God or gods, whatever they believed in, and they would ask the gods to witness the promises and say, and if we break these promises, may the gods deal with us severely. And so it was a promise made where two unrelated parties were committed to each other and there were obligations that they agreed to. But now, as a result, there was a new relationship that didn't exist before. There was a new something that hadn't been there previously. And there were lots of these covenants in the Old Testament times. There were covenants between individuals. Maybe you can remember King David. He made an individual covenant with someone else. Remember the story? With Jonathan. Before King David was King David... He had a friend named Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of the king, King Saul. And so the prince Jonathan and David the shepherd boy became friends. And, and they, they hit it off so well that they were so drawn to each other in, in the Lord that they actually made a covenant. And they, they said basically, David saying, Jonathan, I got your back. I'm always going to do you good. I'm going to look out for you. And Jonathan says to David, I've got your back. I'm going to do you good. I'm going to watch out for your family. We're going to take care of each other. And that bond, that covenant was so strong that later on in the story, if you know the story of David, when King Saul started turning against King David, Jonathan was loyal to David because he'd made a covenant with him. And so that's what a covenant is. It's an agreement where two unrelated parties come together. There were covenants uh, in the Old Testament between tribes. There were covenants between nations. Countries would, and kings would make covenants with each other. Uh, you know, when I think of modern-day covenants, Probably the easiest example, the one that's most often cited, is marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's two people you know, who are unrelated, hopefully, uh, unrelated, 
coming together who have no obligation to one another previously, but have decided to obligate themselves to each other through a vow. And so they stand there, you know, and they hold hands and they say the vows of the covenant. You know, I can take you, Barbie, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer and poor, in sickness and health, forsaking all others, being faithful to you as long as we both shall live. You know, as God is my witness, I give you my promise. It's covenant language. And, and indeed, it is a covenant before God in God's eyes. And, and so there's a promise made, and now there are obligations. There's a Torah of marriage. So that when you're married, you're bound, you're restricted in some ways. You're loyal to that other person. You're faithful to that other person. You've, you've bound yourself up, and you've said, I'm not going to do some of these things. And so some people, they look at that and they say, oh, well, you know, marriage is so restricting and so stifling and there's all, you know, once you get married, then you're locked into a person. Yeah, but that's the great thing about marriage is you have another person who's always there for you. There's, you know, relationships within a covenant framework are life-giving and energizing and a wonderful blessing from God. Rather than being enslaving, a healthy, life-giving marriage is liberating and empowering in many ways. But there's laws and there's rules and there's obligations that go along with that. And so here's God in Deuteronomy basically wedding Israel as a people. He's the husband and Israel is the wife. And, and he says, you're mine now. And yeah, there are rules and obligations, but it's not rules on the side of the pool to make our lives miserable. It's this is what it means to be in relationship with the holy God. This is what it means to live with him. And, and to have fellowship with Him. And the blessings are amazing to live with God. So do it. You know, live, obey. These laws are life, not stifling obligations. I think we can even be more specific about this covenant. Um, there's something else we can say. Not only is this just a covenant in general of commitment, but, but it actually, the covenant of Deuteronomy, is a specific type of covenant from the ancient world. Um, it's a covenant that that we call today, all right, you've got to stay with me here. I'm going to descend into biblical studies nerdiness here, okay? It's called a suzerain vassal treaty. So cool. Okay. A suzerain was a big king. He was like the big powerful king in the ancient world. And then there might be a lesser king who, who was, you know, not as powerful and, and threatened by the other kings. And, and maybe there was another king over here that was threatening the little king. So this little king would run over to the big king and say, hey, I'll be your vassal if you'll be my suzerain. The suzerain was the overlord. He was the ruler. The vassal was the, the servant. And so they would enter into a suzerain-vassal covenant treaty. And, and that king would, would promise to protect and take care of the little king. And the little king would pay tribute to this king and would be loyal to him. And so they entered into a kind of arrangement. Um, it's interesting that uh, in the 2nd century B.C., uh, archaeologists have discovered covenant treaties from that period, suzerain vassal covenant treaties, especially among the Hittites. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Hittites, uh, or maybe you're like me and had to look it up this week, who the Hittites were again. The Hittites lived in the 2nd millennium B.C., and they lived in the region that we'd call today Turkey, in, in the Asia Minor there. And the Hittites were, in their day, they were kind of a superpower. They were a big empire. And they would take over other kingdoms. And they would enter into these suzerain vassal covenant treaties. And it's so interesting. Archaeologists have dug around and archaeologists have found 
ancient copies of suzerain vassal covenant treaties. And, and I just want to take you, this is really interesting, and I'll show you why in a minute. I want to take you through what was in a covenant treaty. So if you take out your sermon notes for a minute, this insert in your bulletin. Let me just walk you through the elements of a second millennium Hittite suzerain vassal covenant treaty. And don't worry, I am going to connect this all back to the text and to real life here in a minute. But you need to see this. It's so interesting. So here are the aspects of a covenant treaty between a suzerain and a vassal. There's the preamble. It usually starts with, these are the words of king so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a historical prologue. That's where the big king, the suzerain, gives a list of all the good things he's done in the past for the little king. Look, I did this for you. I did this for you. Let's remember what I've done for you. And then you have the stipulations. These are the laws defining the obligations of the vassal toward the suzerain and vice versa. And they often include a general list and then a more specific list. But there were the, you know, a covenant was being made. There are obligations and boundaries around a covenant relationship. And then there was uh, words about a deposition where the, you know, where the document would be placed. There were witnesses. The, uh, there would be a list of gods that were called upon and may this God and this God and this God and this God witness these promises. Are the gods witnessing these promises? Okay, we make the promises. And then there was the all-important thing at the end, the blessings and curses. A very uh, specific list of these are the blessings you'll get if you keep the covenant and these are the curses you'll get if you break the covenant. So archaeologists have found these treaties. Well, then what happened was biblical scholars, some of them, started looking at these archaeological discoveries of suzerain vassal treaties and started saying, you know what? That looks like Deuteronomy. And, and, and what they found was Deuteronomy, not exactly, but follows generally this treaty format. It's really fascinating. So if you look at Deuteronomy as a covenant document, you see the next list there. It has a preamble, verses 1 to 5. It even starts with, these are the words of Moses. Uh, there's a historic prologue. We'll start studying that next Sunday. That's from verse 1-6 all the way, actually that's a misprint there, actually to the end of chapter 3. And so that's God recounting to Israel all the things He's done to be faithful to Israel. And then there's the general stipulations, the laws of God, the specific stipulations. This is, these are the rules of living in fellowship with God. There's uh, stuff about the deposition of the document. There's the blessings and curses section of Deuteronomy. If Israel will be faithful to God as a faithful spouse, so to speak, God will bless them. If Israel turns away and worships other gods, God will curse them. And, and perhaps even a divine witness in chapter 32 where uh, Moses does this song to the Lord and His faithfulness. But, but it's, it's there and, and it's really striking. And so you know, part of what makes this so interesting is it shows that Deuteronomy really was written in the time period in which it claims to be written. You know, the second millennium B.C. One of the, uh, the trends of modern biblical scholarship, especially liberal biblical scholarship, is, is sort of a starting assumption that the Bible really isn't what it claims to be. And that if it says that this happened, well, that really couldn't have happened. And if it says in Deuteronomy that Moses spoke these words, he probably didn't speak these words. And so there's this whole school of thought that says that Deuteronomy was written 700 years after Moses in the first millennium B.C. And it was written by King Josiah. And so you have this whole sort of liberal theory. But then these archaeologists find the covenant treaties from the time of Moses. And they go, huh, what do you know? 
That's kind of how Moses structured his document, according to the covenant treaties of his time period. So just one of those wonderful uh, instances of which we could cite many, many instances where archaeology and history have matched with what uh, the Bible purports. Not that we looked at the archaeology to buttress our faith, but it's there. It's really interesting. But even more importantly, what does all this suzerain vassal treaty tell us? It tells us that God was forming a relationship with Israel, not only as husband to wife, but also as suzerain to vassal. That He's the King. He's the great saving King who's rescued them from a bad suzerain named Pharaoh, King of Egypt. And He's brought them into a relationship with Him. So it's like now Israel is in a relationship with God where He is not only an intimate husband, but also a sovereign King. And they're the vassal that serves Him. And so you have these two wonderful aspects of, you know, what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? It means to be in a covenant relationship where there's both love and intimacy on the one hand and authority and God's glorious kingship on the other. God is both loving and holy. And so to be in a relationship with Him is to take the whole thing. So, so we get a sense here of being in a relationship with God. The same thing with Jesus. You know, Jesus came proclaiming, as we just read in Mark, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God. Even Jesus was talking about being in a relationship with God as a king kind of relationship where God is the king and we are His people. Isn't it striking how radically different this view of being in relationship is than the way we tend to view relationships today or the way conventional... Maybe I should say maybe instead of we. The way sort of the conventional wisdom in our culture is about relationships. We tend to view, or the culture views relationships today not as a binding covenant commitment between two parties, but, you know, the paradigm today, I think the best way to sum it up, it's Facebook friends. I don't know if you use Facebook, it's this social online networking thing. I, I kind of got into it because more people in my church were into it, so I was like, well, I might as well see what they're all talking about and what they're doing. Um, so I got onto Facebook. I now have 444 Facebook friends. And I have to tell you, some of these Facebook friends are people I don't think I've ever talked to in real life. Uh, some of them are people from high school that I went to high school with that I don't think I ever talked to in high school. I don't think I actually liked them in high school. But uh, now we're on Facebook and we're friends. You know, they, they, they saw me, they sent me a, a friend request, and I hit confirm friend request, and now we're Facebook friends. Um, but, but what does it mean? What does it mean to be a friend? I guess it means I can look at their postings about, you know, all their narcissism, and they can look at my postings about my narcissism, and we can sort of read each other's things. And you know what? If, if something I wrote offends them, well, guess what they can do? Unfriend. <laughs> they click a little button, and I'm no longer their friend. And I don't even know why. It's just, it, well, I guess I'm not their friend anymore. Maybe I offended them. Maybe they're trying to trim down their list. Who knows? You just don't know, right? All I know is it used to say 444 friends. Now it says 443 friends. And I don't even know who left. It's, it's a very strange phenomenon. <laughs> so, you don't. So, so, like, what does that mean to be in relationship? And in some ways, I, I feel like that sort of Facebook thing, it sort of pictures how relationships are today, that it's all about, 
you know, convenience for me, my personal needs, my personal whatever. And if people don't fit that, well, then unfriend and I move on. But, you know, we, this part of life in the modern world, the modern world uh, has very much um, made relationships very utilitarian in nature. You know, you think about it, you go to Panera Bread or someplace like that and you order some food and you, you don't have any connection to the person giving you the food besides that, you know, you give them your credit card or money and they give you things back. But, you know, you're sort of talking to them and they're talking to you. But, you know, they try to personalize it. They're like, what's your name? And they type it in, you know, to the computer and some guy, you know, I get up there to get my food and he mispronounces my name, you know. But we don't really know each other. It's not like the old days where there was the local diner where everybody knew everybody and there were relationships in a community. That's life in the modern world. It's, it's very autonomous, very um, individualistic very utilitarian in nature. And so it's, it's just the milieu in which we live, and it kind of bleeds into other things. You see it in, in uh, dating relationships and marriages. Um, you know, it, it's so common today for people to cohabitate before getting married and, and to be sexually active before marriage. Um, some people never really get married. They just kind of keep going on in that, that state or condition. And then there's kids who are growing up in a culture where the Facebook friend thing is the norm, and they look to their parent who's, who's cohabitating and not making commitments, and they just kind of grew up in this airy world where there's no commitments, where there's no idea of being in a, a covenant. And it's all just about whatever works for me, you know? It's like this movie with uh, George Clooney called Up in the Air. Just a, a, an insightful movie, I, I thought, about the nature of life in the modern world, that it's very disconnected. He's up in the air. He doesn't live anywhere. He just kind of flies around and floats and totally disconnected from relationships. And, of course, he's an extreme caricature. But, but still it's there. That's one of the challenges of modern life is isolation uh, from others. And so we want community, but we don't understand that community takes commitment. <laughs> the community means accountability. That that's part of being in community. So now you take this view of relationships and now you map it onto God. And what do you get? You get spirituality. That's, we've talked about this before, but that's the buzzword. No one today is religious, but everybody's spiritual. Because the great thing about being spiritual is, you know, it's like Facebook. I can just make it be whatever I want it to be. If my spirituality is going down at 5 in the morning on a Sunday and fishing for striped bass, and I have sort of a moment of peace out there, then, you know, I had a spiritual moment. People say it was kind of spiritual out there. Is spirituality is just, it's really just about me. It's the religion of the self. Doing whatever I want to do to get the kind of feeling that I will describe as spiritual. And so it's very self-constructed. It's very um, made up. And the key words in spirituality is self, me, I, and my. These are the key language of spirituality. Uh, and it's really just the same thing, kind of mapped onto God. And even in the church, it gets mapped onto the church then. Even evangelical Christians. You know, I, I think this is one of the big sort of crises faces, facing evangelicalism today is our understanding of the church. We have a really weakened understanding of the church. You know, we, have, we have small group Bible studies up here. Those are awesome things. I love small group Bible studies. But let's be clear. A small group Bible study is not a church. It just isn't. It's a wonderful thing that supports the church. But it's not a church. But some people will say, well, you know, if my friends and I get together for coffee... And, and we uh, talk about the Bible, then, you know, or we talk about Jesus, or we share our lives, then that was church. No, that's Christian fellowship. That's not a church. 
A church is a specific kind of thing. Um, and so I, I'm concerned that even within evangelicalism, there's this sort of loose understanding of relationships even applied to the church. So you have people who they go to church in this church because they like the preaching, but sometimes they'll pop into this church because they like the music, and they send their kids to that church because it has an awesome kids program, but then they went on a mission trip with another church, but they're not a member of any church. It's like, that's just our culture seeping into the church. Where's the idea of being committed to a group of people? If you're not committed to a group of people, there's no accountability. There's not real community. You know, the great thing about covenant relationships is that you're stuck with each other. There's a wonderful freedom in being stuck with each other. Because you know what? You've got to sort things out. And in a covenant relationship, there's a room for rebukes. You know, I have a covenant relationship with my wife, and there's room for her to rebuke me, which happens, you know, quite frequently, actually, um, as she has to say things to me. But she knows I'm not going anywhere because we're in a, we're a relationship. We've committed to each other. And so she can say some direct things to me that I really need to hear. Same thing in a church. We, we can really sort things out. But if you're in a, a church and somebody comes up and challenges you on something, and you go, who's that to tell me that? I'm out of here. I'll go to another church. Well, it's just unfriend, friend, whatever. It's Facebook church. And so Deuteronomy is going to challenge me. It's going to challenge us. It's going to challenge those of us who have been raised in a modern, postmodern context to think about what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God and therefore, as a result of that, to be in a covenant relationship with God's people, not all Christians everywhere, but what the Bible talks about, a specific body in a specific place. And that's challenging. But this is where, this is the God we serve. He's not just an idea or a feeling. He is a God with whom we relate. He's a husband. He is a king. And so let me just by way of application just say to all of us here, you know, think about that T-ride, all of us here who would might identify more with that lady. Uh, Not that we would stand up and just start talking to a bunch of strangers. Maybe we should. But, but just in the sense that we would say we have a personal relationship with Jesus. That we would even say we have a heart for others having a personal relationship with Jesus. If you find yourself in that category, I guess I think one of the challenges here in Deuteronomy and sort of applications for us today is um, do, do we really relate to God as king? Have we surrendered our life to him? And I think surrendering our lives is a daily repetitive process. It's like taking up your cross daily, putting yourself back on the altar daily. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And as someone has you know, wisely said, the problem with being a living sacrifice is you keep crawling off the altar. Uh, so we have to keep getting back on the altar and saying, God, take my whole life. It's all yours. And so this is a challenge in Deuteronomy. It's going to call us as Christians to give our whole heart, to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, and all of our mind, and all of our strength. And so Deuteronomy is a call to get rid of whatever in our lives is is hindering that total devotion to Christ that would compete with a love for Jesus. Now, there was a problem with the Old Testament law. It's a wonderful thing, the Old Testament covenant. What was the problem with the Old Covenant? The people broke it. They couldn't keep it. And so a lot of the Old Testament is about Israel's failure to keep this law. 
In fact, the rest of the Old Testament is story after story, incident after incident, about the Israelites being like a, a, a wayward spouse. They went and worshipped other gods. They, they continued to wander away from God. And so God sent the prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament, they seem really strange to us. Let me just summarize the prophets really simply for you. The prophets were lawyers sent by God to call Israel back to its covenant. That's all they were. And the prophets would show up and say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you're forgetting the laws of God, and you're also forgetting the curses that will come if you keep disobeying God. So you need to repent and come back to God. And they'd be like, well, we don't like that prophet, so they'd kill him. So God would send another prophet. And, and the prophets would come, and they would give the same message over and over. Repent. Come back to the king. Surrender and find the freedom and joy of living a life for, uh, for, for God and for His glory. Until finally they rejected Him. They rejected God. They rejected Him. And then He finally said, that's it. I reject you. The covenant's broken. And God expelled them from the promised land. And so Israel failed to keep the covenant. And you know, we fail to keep the covenant. None of us here is capable of doing everything that God wants us to do because we're sinners. Not that there's anything wrong with His law. The problem is with us. And so the Old Testament law, even the Ten Commandments, try to keep the Ten Commandments this week. Not only in deed, but in heart. You shall fail. <laughs> Thou shalt fail. <laughs> to try to keep the Ten Commandments. We, we break it, whether in action or spirit or attitude, which Jesus said is just as important, our attitudes and our hearts. So we can't keep God's law. We're like the Israelites. We, if, if that's the way we try to get to God, is, is then we fail. So, so Israel was in this miserable condition where they couldn't keep God's law. They didn't keep God's law. They didn't keep their end of the covenant. But the amazing thing, and this is where we see how gracious and merciful and generous our God is. That even when Israel was failing abysmally and God was sending the prophets and they were killing the prophets, God started sending a new message through the prophets and it was this, that God in His mercy would start a new covenant. It's incredible. God didn't owe them a new covenant, but He starts to promise them, I'm going to make a new covenant, a better covenant. And if you look in your sermon notes, look on the back. I, there are so many texts in the Old Testament that speak of a new covenant that's coming. I don't even have time to list them all or go through them all. But here's a, a little handful of these promises about the new covenant. Probably the most important of which is the big one there, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah prophesied in the day when Jerusalem was finally overrun by the Babylonians and totally destroyed. And, uh, and he, but he gives this prophecy of the new covenant. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. That's the one they got at Mount Sinai. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So the old covenant was one they broke. The new covenant is actually going to be an unbreakable covenant, one that will not be broken. Wow, what kind of covenant is that? Well, here it is. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Notice three things. Number one, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. God's law is not going to be on two stone tablets. It's going to be written on the hearts of the people. Number two, I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So everybody in the new covenant will know God. It's not going to be like Israel in the Old Testament 
where only a remnant were really saved, but everyone else in the covenant really wasn't. It's not going to be a mixed membership. It's going to be a covenant where everybody who's really in the covenant really knows God. And then number three, this is the best, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So all that we've done to break God's laws, all the ways we've failed, will be forgiven under the new covenant. Wow. Where do I sign up for that covenant? How do I get into that relationship with God? And the answer, of course, is that Jesus came as the mediator of the new covenant. It was Jesus at the Last Supper who took the cup and said, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. Turn just one more text, and I'll I'll close with this one. Turn to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8. It's on page 1189. Hebrews chapter 8, page 1189. The book of Hebrews talks about the new covenant. And we'll jump in kind of midstream here. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. The people broke the covenant. It failed. And He said, and then what's next? Jeremiah 31, 31-34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So that whole new covenant promise is reiterated in Hebrews. And now turn over to chapter 9. I'm really restraining myself from just launching into Hebrews here. But just go to chapter 9, verse 15. Just to sum this up. So so you have the new covenant promise reiterated. And then it says in chapter 9, verse 15, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant, the unbreakable covenant, has come in Jesus. Think about it. Think about the three aspects of the new covenant. Number one, the law written on our hearts. When you become a Christian, when you're born again, when the Holy Spirit lives inside you, He changes your heart so that you want to follow God. It's not a bunch of rules on the side of the pool that are ruining my day. It's it's that God has put a new law in my heart. And so you become a Christian and suddenly things that we used to do that seemed attractive now seem unattractive. And things that used to seem like a drag are now drawing me to them. It's it's a life-giving experience. And it's inside of us through the Holy Spirit. Number two, all of us will know the Lord. One of the amazing things when you become a Christian is that you know the Lord. You know Him. Not that you know Him exhaustively or completely, but you know the Lord. I, I open up the Bible... This book that didn't make sense and I become a Christian, you know what? Suddenly it's speaking to me. God is speaking. And I pray. And and God hears my prayers. And I'm relating to Him. I know the Lord. It's the most phenomenal thing to know the God of the universe and to know Jesus. And then, of course, the third part of the New Covenant. None of our sins are remembered. They're all washed away. And we see that there in chapter 9, verse 15 of Hebrews now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. All of the things that I have done to disqualify myself from a relationship with God, and boy, that's a long list. That whole list has been deleted through the blood of Jesus. 
That whole file has been erased and trashed. And you can't find it on my hard drive. Because Jesus has wiped it out. So that now when God sees me, He sees a covenant keeper. (laughs) Which is almost preposterous. But Jesus has washed away my sins. Not only that, His covenant obedience has been credited to my account. So go back to verse 14 of chapter 9. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God. He was unblemished. There's only one person who's kept the covenant. Jesus Christ is the covenant keeper. So His blood erases all of my disqualifying attitudes and behavior and sins. And His righteousness is now applied to me so that when God, my covenant God, sees me, He sees a covenant-keeping Jeremy. And He sees a covenant-keeping church. It's amazing. That's why this covenant is unbreakable, this new covenant. Because Christ has kept it. Christ has forgiven my sins. Christ has implanted the Holy Spirit so that my heart is changed. And so from beginning to end, the new covenant is about God doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. So I talked to those of you on the train who uh, maybe say you have a personal relationship with Christ. Let me talk to all the Dennis's here. All the people who kind of like, what does that mean? How do I have that? To have a personal relationship with Christ means that we come to Jesus the Mediator to enter into a new covenant with Him. We confess our sins. We say, you know what, God? This whole way I used to be living, it was wrong. It's against Your law. I'm, I'm guilty. It's a repentance of all that stuff. It's a recognition that we can't make it into a new covenant with Jesus on our own. You know, you can't reconnect with God savingly by doing Zen yoga on the beach at sunrise. You know? That may be really healthy. It may be good for your body. It may be very relaxing. But that's not how we reconnect with God. Um, we can't get there by trying to be religious and going to church and saying, I'm going to straighten up my life. I'm going to improve my behavior. I'm going to take a new path. I'm going to make some changes. That's not how we get there. We can only come through the mediator, Jesus, who washes our sins and restores us. And no matter who we are, no matter how bad we have disobeyed God's laws, the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Or maybe I should phrase it. Have you entered into the new covenant, the new covenant relationship with the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, we just want to praise You this morning that You, the Creator God, have made a way for us to be in a covenant with You. That, Lord, You have become our King. You have become our husband. You have, you have washed away our sins and made a way for us to be with You. And so, Lord, I pray for every Christian here, everybody who's in a covenant with Christ, that they would, that they would really love You, Jesus, and that, that there would be nothing in our heart that would be offensive to You that we might offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that we would take up our cross. And Lord, just teach us more and more what it means to live in harmony and unity with the King of Kings. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who doesn't have that relationship with Christ, God, that You would reveal Yourself to them, Jesus, that they would come to the end of themselves, the end of their own efforts, the end of their own morality, 
and, and look to the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus, as the one who forgives and makes us right with you. Lord, we, I just pray for this, this body, for all these people assembled here. I, I don't really have a clue where anyone stands. I just have to work on making sure I'm in the right covenant. But Lord, I pray for everyone here that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one. And there might not be a person who leaves this place who doesn't do business with you today and enters the new covenant in Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen.